Hello, everyone. My name is Kiki, and I am here with Laura, Sophia, and Maria. We are in Historical and Contemporary Approaches to Religion, Conflict, and Dialogue with Helga West and Katharina Kunter. Um, this is our project, our final project, and we've decided to um, focus our project on the Hindu-Muslim conflict in contemporary India. Now, just a little you know, preliminary things before we get into uh, this podcast. Um, I'm specifically going to talk about the theological perspective of the, of the Hindu-Muslim conflict. Um, Sophia is going to uh, talk about um, the political aspect and um, also the religious aspects and can they be separated. Laura is going to give us um, some historical background of the tensions in the conflict. And then Maria is going to give us a global perspective and a response um, from around the world. But not only that, uh, Maria is going to kind of lead us into maybe some approaches to resolution for this conflict. And so before we get started, um, I just want to give everyone a little bit of an introduction um, to the Hindu-Muslim conflict, if you're not familiar. So here it is. Two atrocities have been largely associated with religious unrest in India. Uh, the burning of the Barbary Mosque in Ayutthaya and Uttar Pradesh in 1992 and the 2002 massacres in Gujarat. Both also sparked national protests and reprisals and have played an important part in, in violence among the Hindu and the Muslim community. The key causes for religious violence in India are the systematic incitement of religious hate for political purposes. Now, religions are meant to create peace and unity among people, but they begin to cause conflicts. And sometimes they cause conflicts, um, but there can be no single casual source of religious conflicts here in this particular situation. None, nonetheless, if we are to see what causes religious strife, it is ignorance. And in order to fulfill their fixed agendas, sometimes political parties or sometimes people ride in their ignorance of the majority to um, incite religious sentiments. And so this is kind of the foreshadowing and the overcasting of uh, the Hindu-Muslim uh, conflict in India. And so I'm going to just begin by passing it over to Laura so she can ask me a few questions about the theological implications of this conflict. Laura. Thank you. Um, I would like to just ask you first, what is the theological perspective of the Hindu-Muslim conflict in India? And what are the theological implications of identity uh, within this conflict and the theological implications of religious terrorism? Wow, those are awesome questions. Thank you so much, Laura, for uh, proposing them. Um, first, before we actually get into the details of the theological implications of identity, I want to go back to a lecture that uh, we were all able to um, experience just a few weeks back. Risto Serenine came to um, our class and talked about the recognition of others in ecumenical theology. And I thought that this would be a perfect opportunity to insert um, just kind of the methods of uh, just what does it mean, the recognition of others, uh, not only just ecumenical theology, but in this Hindu-Muslim conflict. So three main things that um, this, you know, that Risto talked about 
uh, was, you know, the recognition of others means love in the private sphere, especially in the family among friends. Uh, recognition of others means respect in the legal sphere. Equal treatment, no problematic privileges, burdens shared equally. And then also recognition of others means esteem and active life of work and other services. Capabilities and individual achievements can be appreciated in this sphere without violating the equality of respect. And lastly, in multicultural society, the legal sphere of respect concerns everyone and also the achievements are social and public. Privacy mostly in families and among friends. And so pulling from this lecture, these three uh, uh, principles of recognition, which is love, respect, and esteem, um, I argue within this conflict from a theological perspective has been lost. Um, and I say this as it relates to symbols, sacred texts, and places of worship within the Hindu-Muslim conflict. Now, particularly with symbols, um, when we talk about the riots in Gerat, um, apparently, the, the, you know, this, these riots were started um, because of a conflict between a mother and two children and also um, someone who is of the Hindu tradition who, who kind of um, you just walk in the cows and there were some tensions that were that flowed and then massacres and 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 riots kind of began right after that but let me just read this a little bit um, the first part I want to talk about this theological Im implication is the symbols so the symbol of the cow um, so um, the symbol of the cow the cows you know Hindus do not consider the cow to be a god and they do not worship it but Hindus however are vegetarians and they consider the cow to be a sacred symbol of life that should be protected and revered. And so this is a symbol that's really important to uh, the Hindu um, tradition and Hinduism in general. And so, and so what you see here is you see a symbol and kind of like a conflict theologically of like, okay, like, you know, this is something that's sacred, but then now there's some tension here. Uh, so after that, things kind of incited, and I won't get into the majority of the story, but just kind of talking about the theological implications of what's sacred to someone and what's sacred to Hindus and what's sacred to Muslims, you know, um, and, and how that was such a difference within India back in 1969, but still has complications and implications for today. The second thing I want to talk about is sacred texts. There was a report of, um, because of these tensions, there was a report of a woman who said, you know, they took our Quran, they threw it in the streets and they pissed on it. And they tell us to get out of this country, but we were born here. Our men fought for this country. Where can we go? And so another theological implication of this is saying, okay, um, this is a sacred text and you're discarding it. You're actually using what's inside of your body to disrespect it. But when you disrespect it, you disrespect us. And so that was the second theme. The third theme I want to talk about is places of worship. Uh, there was a sixth century mosque that symbolized Muslim domination of the land. And uh, India is the birthplace of Hinduism. And so um, they both arrived at different times. And so um, there was a destroying of a place of worship, which also impacted the people. And so we see these three things that have uh, these theological implications of like, this is my sacred text. This is my uh, symbol that's important to me, but also this is my place of worship. And so we see these materialism and items that are being fought over. And so going back to Risto Saranin, his recognition of ecumenical theology um, what, where, where's the love? Where's the respect? Where's the esteem? I think what is happening and what has happened within the Hindu Muslim conflict is there is a fear of erasure, a fear of something being taken away, whether it's, uh, you know, violation of a sacred symbol, vi violation of a place of worship, violation of a sacred text. 
if that's taken away, that has a lot to do with identity and what people hold as um, something that they love. Um, and so I think that is something that I've seen um, during my research, but also uh, within this conflict. So right now, um, I'm going to pass it to Laura to give us a little bit about the historical approach um, of the Hindu-Muslim conflict. So, Laura, the question that I want to propose to you is, um, what's the effects of historical Hindu nationalism on the contemporary conflict of the Hindu-Muslim conflict? And the, and the second question I want to propose to you is, what led to the rise of Hindu nationalism? Thank you, Kiki. And... Um I think it's really important, this historical aspect that um, when talking about identity, because the identity was uh, taken away, not uh, not by Muslims really, but uh, foreign foreign uh, colonialists. So it's uh, it's interesting that what happened happened to uh, the relations. But to start, I think it's uh, important to mention that of course, everyone knows that this, but India is huge. And I'm going to be uh, using terms like syncretism or hybridity, but they, of course, do not fully describe what was the relationship between the two faiths. But um, Hindu and Muslim relations have been a topic for both, uh, shall we say, sides since the very first century of Islam, so about the year 700. Islam brought with uh, it new theological thinking to Hinduism influenced by their monotheistic theology. One could say Hinduism got a boost from Islam, leading to new in interpretations of Vedic te texts and uh, the relationship stayed, if not synergistic, but mutually inclusive for a very long time. So even though the power structures changed and things like this, the religions didn't argue so much. And um, the Hindus participated in honoring Islamic saints, for example, and Hindu wedding practices were ado adopted into Islam. And these two religions were quite separate in terms of geography, so nothing happened um, in terms of like dividing, uh, dividing uh, one space in South Asia until colonizers from Europe arrived, causing a diaspora for Hindus, uh, once, making them sort of turn outward with their religion instead of uh, make, be, um, letting it be like uh, a personal practice. And they, this diaspora also created local varieties of coexisting around India for previously somewhat separate practice, uh, religious culture. Uh, with Islam. Like religious everyday life, the combining of faiths wasn't really present as much. Like inter, 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 intra religious uh, marriages weren't really common, although maybe some Hindu uh, leaders um, had uh, Muslim wives and definitely vice versa. Uh, but when politics came into play, the balance was disrupted by this combative or power-driven approaches to the um, somewhat shared space. 
And it's us- uh, and it's useful to point out again that the hybridity or syncretism they were together and they were like joined, but they followed their own theologians, they followed their own religious le- leaders. And so some practices from Islam survived, some from Hindu. And when the Hindu nationalism uh, sort of started to rise, they took parts of this historical syncretism to lift up what survived uh, or what replaced Islamic practices and uh, pointed out that, okay, this must be superior then. So because they have been surviving history so long and uh, this coexistence is uh, is uh, our um, sort of, um, the coexistence can be used as a tool to point out the superiority of one practice over another. And uh, one crucial element to the birth of Hindu nationalism were the teachings of Swami Vivekananda. In He lived late uh, 19th century. He was a Bengali philosopher and reformer. And he wanted to create a Hinduism that was more dynamic, rational, and more male-dominant. So, for example, in that his area, they used to uh, worship Kali, this uh, female goddess, and he replaced it with the worship of Shiva. And he also declared Hinduism as the one true faith. But around the same time, at the turn of the 19th and 20th centuries, Hindu nationalist literature, Justice Hemchandra, um, Hemchandra Bandiopadhyay's poem Bhagrat Chanjit, the song of Bhagrat, called upon Hindu men to worship India as their goddess and defend her with weapons instead of prayers and meditation, fighting to free themselves from foreign occupations. Few more poets followed in Hemchandra's footsteps to create uplifting stories for the Hindu men of India to uh, take from their vivid history and make them strong Hindu men again instead of just guys, I guess, just Indian men. So they wanted to be Hindu men with Hindu history. The yogi and philosopher Sri Aurobindo, also in the late uh, 19th, 19th, uh, early 20th century, were popular extremist and revolutionary texts to spark the idea of the Hindu nation. And these texts have a large part in the politics of Hindu belief above all else. Bankin Chandra Chattopadhyay is also a writer who is credited to have started this type of thinking in Bengal and nationwide, public, publishing one of the most important pieces of Indian literature, Anamanda, in, in 1882, which was basically a story, again, of this um, noble but poor Hindu man and his family and his uh, fight for freedom. But um, then when the paramilitant group, the Rashtriyas of so the National Volunteer Organization was founded in 1925. It marks for many the start of the Hindu nationalism in action. However, these writings of the aforementioned Bengali religious influencers and philosophers, they were the ones who paved the way for Hinduism to become one, the one true faith and the one true history of many tra- of um, instead of many traditions coexisting quite harmoniously with their surroundings and these writings were by a part of making muslims the other and pushing them to be the other um, to lift this new dynamic and rational hinduism up 
in the same time when the nationalism, Hindu nationalism was born, so was Muslim separatism, which of course then led to the founding of Pakistan in 1947. But, um, attitudes towards Muslims were already um, sort of um, pejorative, I guess, that uh, they sort of saw Muslims as being opposed to higher, meaning Western, uh, education and kept their orthodox religious practices and valued them above education. In truth, it was more a case of poverty than anything else that kept the Muslims from seeking a higher education valued so highly in the Victorian era. Um, prominent Islamic figures such as uh, Sir Saeed Ahmad Khan, um, who was he was really wanting to bring Islam in the influence of Western education and making it more appealing to Muslim communities. So he started a Muslim college, Aligarh, and um, emphasized sort of scientific approach than, rather than just concentrating on Islamic studies. Which And why I'm talking about this is that these intellectuals who came from Aligarh and uh, followed um, uh, Saeed Ahmad Khan, for example, were the ones who started to think about the separatism, to maybe see that there has to be an option that they can't be pushed away, but they have to have their own area. So, for example, um, when Hindus started to uh, really escalate the the violence against um, Muslims. Um, they One uh, sect of Hinduism, for example, campaigned to ban the killing of cows, and the cow meat trade was crucial for Muslims. So hundreds of thousands of people depended on it as an only source of income. And they also, uh, the sect wanted to use, uh, wanted to ban the use of Urdu language in governments and in public spaces. And these were the sort of campaigns that went on and caused this sort of communalism that it deleted the gray areas of living together despite uh, the different religious practices. And um, while many prophylic Muslims in places of power worked towards a free and united India in the 1930s, this started to change and the idea of a separate Muslim state was founded, which then led to the founding of Pakistan. But all in all, the history of Islam and Hindu, Hinduism seems to be interpreted as politicians and extremists, please. I feel that in seeking independence, especially the Hindus needed to validate their efforts by pushing out the otherness, and this otherness being Muslims or Islam. So thank you, Kiki, and uh, I'm going to come back to you, and you can then ask some more questions thank from Thank you so much, Laura. That was an incredible um, summary, but also analysis of, um, you know, the Hindu nationalism and also the, the contemporary um, conflict, the, the contemporary Hindu Muslim conflict. Um, so right now I'm going to kind of shift the conversation and go to Sophia and um, kind of go into the political and the religious aspects. So Sophia, um, you know, Laura has talked about um, the history. Now we want to talk about the politics. So my question to you, two questions or three questions. Um, the first one is concerning the Muslim and Hindu conflict in India and varying perspectives, can religious and political aspects be separated or are they integral to the conflict? 
Um, that's my question number one. And my second question is for you, what is the Hindufa movement? And then my third question is, how are the VHP and the BJB involved in the riots? So, Sophia, please lead us away. So, Kiki, thank you very much. Um, I feel that it's pretty tricky to separate the religious and the political dimension um, because they are highly intertwined to the to the involvement of political parties with the Hindu nationalist ideology into events such as the destruction of the Babri Mosque in 1992, the Gujarat riots in 2002, and even the Delhi riots in 2020. Um, the party involved, political party involved, is the so-called BGP. It's one of the two major parties in India, and the current Prime Minister Moody is part of this respective BGP. Um, Laura formerly mentioned the RSS, this extremist Hindu organization, and Prime Minister Moody joined this organization as a student, rose steadily in the hierarchy of this organization, which was very beneficial for his subsequent political career. So um, today he's part of the BGP, which he also led to its success. The BGP party um, is supporting the Hindutva movement, um, which was originally promoted by the RSS. So you can imagine that the RSS is kind of the arc and it has a, a um, political arm that is the BGP and also a militant arm, the VHP. The VHP was formed in 1964 in order to promote Hinduism and to give Hindus a sense of identity. So you asked me, what is the Hindutva movement? Um, basically, it's the main force behind the Indian chauvinism or like the um, extreme form of nationalism. And it's a religious political movement aiming to establish the Hindu Rashtra, um, the Hindu state. So um, the goal is kind of to establish a holy a Hindu holy land. Um there are two strong represent representatives of the Hindutva movement. The one is called Savarkar, and he follows, yeah, or he, um, he includes such sayings um, as Hindutva embraces all aspects of life, including politics, and he very much emphasizes the superiority of the Hindu race. The problem about the Hindu holy land, for example, is that since it's also inhibited by other religious and ethnic groups, like Christians or Muslims, um, they are seen as political enemies by the Hindus. Another important figure of this um, Hindutva movement is Skolvakar, who says that Hindu race is the only race worthy of dominating the world and non-Hindu communities have no place in Indian national life. I think what's important to mention concerning this movement is that Hindutva leaders admire such personas such as Mussolini and Hitler and are very much pro-fascism. I think it would be good like to um, to look at the BGP ideology a little bit because it contains elements of this Hindutva movement. Formerly, um, 
in the party program, there was there were sentences such as people of different faith and different ideologies should be able to exist in peace in harmony with it, with each other. Um, yeah, and that has changed. So this change in ideology is also represented in the BGP. Now it's mainly referring to Galval Carr's concept. So they, they say that minorities have to become Hindus against their will. Otherwise, they will experience violence and threat from Hindus. So um, this concept emphasizes the creation of a Hindu empire by conquest and by engaging in the task of temple rescuing activities as accepted and upheld by the RSS and BHP. And yeah, one another thing that the BGP emphasizes is um, are the roots of Indian nationalism in Hinduism as a religious identity. So their view is that India's national identity should incorporate Hindu traditions, values, practices and beliefs as Hindus constitute the majority. So there is this interlinkage of what, yeah, to what Laura already said about this identity conflict. You see that it's, it has this religious dimension concerning like religious identity and the holy land. On the other hand, this high involvement of very, very high politics into engaging these ideologies and um, promoting these ideologies. Next, I'm going to talk a little bit about how the VHP and BGP as political forces are involved in the riots or in contemporary riots. So first of all, there was the demolition of the Babri Mosque in 1992. Background is that from the 1960s onwards, the VHP's main goal has been to build a temple for Lord Ram or the deity Ram at the site of the Babri Mosque in Ayodhya. And yeah, this is due to the claim that the Babri Mosque was built on the site of a Ram temple. Um, or built after the demolition of a Ram temple. So the site is, to, is believed to be the birthplace of God Rama. Um, so what happened in November 1992, the former BGP politician Advani and other politicians of the BGP started process, processions for the mobilization of public support for the demolition of the Babri Mosque. On the 6th of December in 1992, there was a gathering of 70,000 Hindus nearby the mosque, which were addressed by the BGP and BHP, which resulted in 150 Hindus attacking the police with stones and 100,000 uh, 1, <laughs> Hindu fanatics entered the Babri Mosque. 80 of them even started to damage the domes. What is remarkable about these happenings is that the local authorities and police were just mute spectators and they had strict instructions from Chief Minister Kailan Singh not to use force against the rioters. And besides the demolition of the mosque, rioters set fire to houses of Muslims and started killing people, especially uh, Muslim leaders. Another example are the... Um, is the Muslim genocide in Gujarat in 2002. So on the 27th of February in 2002, the Sabamarti Express train, which was carrying Karse Vax, 
these are Hindu volunteers and VHP members, so mainly members from the Hindu right, was stopped in a predominantly Muslim neighborhood and attacked by a Muslim mob. Um, and they set the train aflame, which resulted in 58 people dying, uh, amongst them many women and children. And there are several theories around the incident. One of them is that the Karstevaks provoked the Muslims in the area for the previous days, as well as the Muslims on the train. Um, the activists of the VHP are accused to be responsible for the provocations too. The reaction to the burning of Hindus was a three-day-lasting Muslim genocide from the 28th of February until the 20th, uh, the uh, 2nd of March. Um, what happened is that organized Hindu mobs were roaming the streets of Gujarat. Um, so... 2,000 people died, most of them Muslims, and religious and cultural monuments were destroyed. The involvement of politics and police in this riot um, starts again at with Narendra Modi. Uh, he was chief minister of Gujarat at the time and justified the genocide on the basis of the Godra incident. The police, as well as during the demolition of the Babri Mosque, mainly stood by, and it is claimed that it has systematically it has been systematically politicized by the BHP. Because all higher positions at the time were given to VHP members. For example, police ex inspector Vevo actively participated in the demolition of the Babri Mosque. And at the same time, he was, um, yeah, had had a very high position at the local police. So the Gujarat riots are alleged to be instigated by the leaders of the VHP. There was also a report done by Amnesty International in 2004. And Amnesty International came to the conclusion that um, the Gujarat riots were mainly instigated by the VHP and BGP, which again shows their strong involvement in violence against Muslims. So um, that is basically um, the political scene and I'm giving the word back to you, Kiki. Thank you so much, Sophia. That was really excellent. Now we're going to kind of um, finish out our podcast um, and our kind of analysis of the Hindu-Muslim conflict with Maria and Maria is really going to kind of give us an overview of what the global narrative is. Um, and so Maria, I just have a question, um, for you. Uh, my main question is from a global perspective, you know, what was the, uh, I think historical response, um, of, you know, to the Hindu Muslim conflict. And then what is, um, the contemporary response to the Muslim Hindu conflict, you know, where there's sanctions, um, has what has the United Na uh, Nations have said and the reports they've put out? Um, is there silence? Right? Is <laughs> is there nothing being said about this? And we're shedding some light um, on, on it um, all the way here in Helsinki. And then a third a third question for you is this: Is there a resolution or solution for the Hindu-Muslim conflict? Maria, please take it away. 
Okay, so thank you, Kiki, for your questions. And I'll start with the things that Sophia already discussed in her part. So you heard about the destruction of the Baptist Moscow. Mosque. Uh, so after the mosque was uh, destroyed, uh, for example, the Pakistani government, uh, India's neighbor, closed offices and schools for a day in order to sow protest. So as Pakistan is a Muslim country, they were showing uh, that they are not tolerating this kind of behavior from India. The, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Pakistan was also planning to formally appeal the issue to the United Nations. Uh, Pakistan expressed concern that India is not protecting the basic rights of its Muslim population. Uh, some po- protesters in Pakistan, Muslim protesters I mean, attacked the office of Air India in Lahore. Uh, similar kind of thing happened also in Bangladesh, which is also a Muslim country. So some Muslim protesters attacked the uh, office of Air India in Dhaka, the capital of Bangladesh. And also in Bangladesh, some Muslim protesters burned down Hindu temples, stores and houses of individual people. Uh, the Gulf countries of Middle East strongly condemned the destruction of the mosque. The United Arab Emirates, for example, were more moderate in their reaction, as the country is also home to many Indians and Pakistanis who work there as expatriates and immigrant workers. However, protesters also broke out in, in the country and Hindu temples were attacked, as was the Indian consulate that is situated in Dubai. As a result, many of the Indians and Pakistanis who had taken part in the violence were deported by the United Arab Emirates. Also, Iranian Ayatollah Ali Khamenei stated that India is not doing enough to protect its Muslim citizens. So from these kind of um, statements by these Muslim countries, we can conclude that they were condemning this violence and seeing that the India is not doing enough for its citizens that are uh, belong to the Muslim religion. So then there's the Gujarat riots of 2002. So after there were numerous police to investigate the riots, national and international investigations later found out that the violence was indeed supported by the Indian state. The National Human Rights Commission of India condemned these events as it saw that the state had failed to protect the the constitution of India. But on the other side, the U.S. State Department also concluded that the violence had been premeditated by the state and the state had uh, been fully aware of what was happening. Uh, The police didn't act while it saw the Muslims being attacked. The State Department of United States also stated that the Gujarat High School textbook portrayed the personality and achievements of Hitler in a positive light. So this relates back to what Sophia just said, uh, that that there are clear uh, traces of this uh, Nazi ideology. Uh, two U.S. congressmen also called for Modi, who was the uh, chief minister at the time, to be condemned for inciting religious persecution as they saw that Modi's government had promoted attitudes of racial supremacism and glorified Nazism. Because of the events, the United Kingdom and the United States imposed a travel ban on Modi. Uh, later on in 2005, Modi was refused a visa to the United States. The United Kingdom lifted its ban in 2012 and Modi was later invited also to Washington after being elected as the Prime Minister of India. In 2015, a senior United Nations official 
Christopher Hines, uh, urged Modi's government to make the findings of the Navanati Metra Commission public. So this was the commission that was investigating these events in Gujarat. The commission had concluded that Chief Minister Modi had no role in the events that unfold and they didn't find any faults in how the state authorities had acted. It was also concluded that the state had come applied with the recommendations given by the National Human Rights Commission. Heinz expressed this call at the 29th session of the United Nations Human Rights Council. The council also concluded that India had not provided sufficient information about the promotion and awards given to the police officers that were suspected of judicial killings during the riots. The report expressed concern for the fact that the state forces had tolerated the attacks and had not protected the religious minorities in India. And last, uh, but the most recent one, we have Delhi riots of 2020. So in February of 2020, Delhi experienced multiple occasions of violence, property destruction and rioting. The riots were mostly caused by Hindu mobs who were attacking Muslims. 53 people died during the riots, of whom two-thirds were of Muslim population. The Hindus participating in the violence were reported to be supporting Hindu nationalism and some were carrying saffron flags and shouting nationalist slogans. The U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom expressed deep concern over the riots and again it was mentioned that India seems not to be providing the protection its people need no matter what their religion is. Besides this, the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights, Michelle Paselet, also stated that India had been unable to treat its citizens fairly and that police inaction is a real concern. Also, Erdogan, the president of Turkey, criticized India for the violence and allowing such events to continue occurring. On the NGO side, Amnesty International also concluded that there are clear indications of human rights violations happening in India, and but despite that, the Indian police is not under any further investigation. So from what we have just learned and heard, the only thing that seems to be able to bring peace to this conflict is time and fatigue. So this means that the conflicts and tensions may only be resolved as time passes and both parties become exhausted from clashing. But this also seems to lie in the unforeseen future. That was yeah, that's, that's completely, me. completely amazing. Thank you, Maria. But the last question I want you to kind of answer, and which you, you said something about the future is, do you see any, I mean, we've heard the theological implications of identity. We've talked about erasure. Laura talked about the history. Sophia talked about the politics, but also religion. And, and, and then you just talked about the global narrative of you know, saying, hey, you all are not following your Indian, con- you, well, India is not following its constitution. This is what Pakistan is saying. This is what the United Nations is saying. Here are the sanctions or the, you know, advisories from um, the U.S. And, 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 you know, just so wonderfully, everyone has uh, summarized what, um, you know, the different pieces and approaches to this conflict. So, Maria, my question to you is, do you see any resolution? Do you see any solution for this conflict? Uh, so, like I previously mentioned, it seems that the only thing uh, is uh, time and uh, the, the fact that these parties become uh, like exhausted from uh, this conflict. Like at, at the moment, there uh, seems to be no real progress. And also the United Nations, for example, is not investigating these uh, events at all at the moment, at least for what we have just concluded here. Well, 
that's our podcast. Um, thank you all for tuning in. I am Kiki. You heard Laura. You heard Maria. You heard Sophia. Um, we are just uh, grateful for this opportunity to talk about um, this conflict. Um, we hope that there will be a resolution, but um, at this point, we've seen so many dimensions of it that um, you know it will take time, um, and we'll we'll see what the future holds. Thank you.